Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. With me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. And in a week when Tesco puts 1,800 jobs at risk as part of their bakery services overhaul and concerns continue to rise with the coronavirus threatening to become a pandemic and Yorkshire tea are in hot water. Bada boom. <laughs> Following the social media backlash relating to the new Chancellor of the Exchequer posting a picture of himself with a rather large bag of tea bags. Did you see it? It was a huge bag. It was, yes. <laughs> but if none of this is your cup of tea, we turn our attention to a subject that concerns each of us every time we visit the local supermarket, grab a takeaway meal during the week, or venture. You have a takeaway in the week, Heather, do you? No, I don't know. So, I mean, um, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Or venture out for Sunday lunch with the family. We are looking today at food hygiene ratings. I think it's brilliant. Do you? Do you like it? What, food hygiene ratings? Yeah, those numbers on the door and the little green sticker. Just a little green sticker, isn't it? Yeah. Naught to five. Yes. Do you do you pay attention to them? Well, I used to until a friend of mine said that actually and and indeed when you start to look at what each of the different things mean, um, the, a five is basically what I would what I would Expect. be expecting from somebody who was preparing food for me. So I don't think it means amazing, although it is classed as very good. So so they rank it as five is very good, four is good, three is generally satisfactory. I mean, Which by then weak. I don't want to eat there. Yeah. Uh, two improvement necessary. One major improvement necessary. Zero urgent improvement necessary, which I would hope would mean closed down. But not quite. But not quite, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't quite go that far. Um, I did find out that 34 premises in Wales have a food hygiene score of zero. And do they display the sticker that says that? They have, they have to, to, don't they? By law, yes. It's only optional in England, but it, it's um, it's a mandatory in Wales. Yeah, I mean, I, that's like... That's just embarrassing. I'd, I'd close it down rather than put the zero sign up. That'd be like putting all the job interviews that you didn't get on your CV. <laughs> I love that analogy. That's really good. So what are they looking at with these ratings? So when the inspector comes, and the inspector comes unannounced. Yes. So they don't make an appointment. They turn up because they're looking to see how you operate on a normal day. Mm. They're looking at how you handle food, how you store food, how you prepare it, the cleanliness of the facilities, and how food is safely managed they don't look at how well it's cooked so they're not or what it that tastes like a, a good establishment what customer service is like or how it's presented or how comfortable you are but it's the important things actually that, that can affect your health is is how well they're looking after the food that's going to be served to you <clears throat> i saw an interesting article in the daily post uh, Wrexham um daily newspaper um and it's um it's about a lady called Rebecca Pomeroy, uh, who is Wrexham Council's lead food hygiene officer. And um, she was asked, um, as a lead food hygiene officer, what is the lowest score you would personally tolerate? Oh, oh gosh, that's, so that's really quite interesting. telling, isn't it? Would she go for? She says three. Three is the lowest score which is broadly compliant with regulation. I just, I don't broadly. want broadly compliant. If I'm, if I'm cooking some sausages on a barbecue, you know, in a field in the middle of nowhere and I drop it in the fire and I just still decide to eat it and it might not be slightly, 
you're cooked quite yeah. enough. That's me. That's my risk. Apply the five second rule. Exactly. In your own yes. kitchen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, field. yeah, totally. But if I'm buying the food, I want it to be absolutely dob on. Um, I think one of the big things is um, that they look at is how you segregate the foods. And, you know, we're all starting to learn now how important it mm. is to keep cooked meats away from raw meats. And if you've got a zero, you've actually shown up that you're not segregating your food well. Yeah, um, You've um, also shown that you're not keeping the place clean. And a lot of us do that stuff at home now, don't we? You know, you, you, you know, you have coloured boards, or you know, that's increasingly. Well, once upon a time, you just had a chopping board. Well, in my house when I was a kid, yeah. you had a chopping board, and it didn't matter if it was six. raw chicken or cheese or you know, yeah. Now it's a bit more. Um, yeah, I think we're, we are more aware of the the dangers of these things. You know, sort of handling raw chicken, and you realise just how dangerous it can be. And you really would expect a professional establishment to do that mm, right. Mm. The havoc they could wreak if they get that wrong, it's not just making their own family sick, it's the whole um, bookings that they'd had that day or that week yeah. in the restaurant. Yeah. Well, you. I mean, you hear these stories, don't you? They emerge sometimes where, you know, guests at a wedding, you know, have all oh, been gosh, taken yeah. ill because there's salmonella or something you know you just think oh my goodness you know from the business point of view that is going to completely kill your business uh but but some of the stuff that i thought was really interesting is starting to look at who needs to have a food hygiene rating because particularly now um a lot of people perhaps run a small business from home where they might be making food um, and the one that really surprised me was um people who um, look after kids. If you're a childminder, it may be that if you're providing food for that child, that you need to be registered. Now, you might not have to display a rating, but you might need to be registered as somebody who supplies food. But broadly speaking, you will need to register your food business if you sell food, cook food, store or handle food, prepare food or distribute food. But then there seems to be some elements where if you are supplying the food business to business, then it appears that the onus is on the people that you're supplying who are then going to supply to the customer. So the rating really is for consumers. Uh, uh, yeah, at the point yeah, where yeah, you're buying it or you're, you're going to sit and eat it. Um, but yeah, some interesting, interesting stuff and lots of discrepancies between England, Wales and even Northern Ireland. One of the articles that caught my eye was from uh, this January. And uh, it's a phrase that um, I've often heard. So when your favourite takeaway has got a, a less than five rating and so many people say, oh, it's they got the paperwork wrong. It's not too serious. And this article on the BBC News website is quoting the lead environmental officer in food safety at Pembrokeshire Council. And uh, he dispels this myth. He said, if you've got a zero, it reflects failures across the board. It's not just paperwork. Uh, to get a zero, there would have to be things like cross-contamination between raw meat and ready-to-eat products, pest infestations, and he says it's really the worst level of compliance. Unfortunately, they're very few and far between. But if you've got a zero, it's more than just paperwork, which I think is really important to yeah. know. He does say that um, he's worked in environmental health for 27 years and he's seen the rating system has drastically improved standards. 
and, and I can understand yeah. why. So you do t- pay attention. I pay attention to it. And um, I know there's a, a local establishment in, in Wrexham that recently got a very poor rating. And a number of people who just said, oh, I'm not going there again yeah. because they'd lost the trust in that organisation. You know, they're, they're paying their money to be provided with nice food. And then you, you read things like this that say there's cross-contamination, possibly pest infestations, the worst type of compliance. And those types of things, they stick, don't they? Because, yeah. you know, Joe's calf... Even if it reinvents itself as Mary's calf, they're always going to go, oh, yeah, but isn't that the place where they have zit? And it just, exactly, it it, it just stays that way. A couple of things I came across um, again on the government website, um, there's stuff about food hygiene for your business, food hygiene for your home business um, on um, one website, how to start a food production business and how to start a street food business. Now, that's ah, growing market, the big thing, it? isn't yeah. it? Lots of people, particularly, you know, they're, they're overhauling camper vans and, you know, all sorts of things. Um, and I think that if, it, if that's something that you're interested in, then you really need to get all over what applies to you, uh, what you can sell, what you can't sell, how it needs to be packaged, etc. So I think we'll put links to all of these different um different websites if you're running a food business if you're thinking of running a food business uh, then this is something that you really need to be aware of we'll put all of that on our website thebusiness.community you're listening to the business community on Callan fm and at the top of the show we mentioned about the coronavirus and uh, Just on Wednesday this week, Diageo, uh, the world's biggest spirits company, said that the spread of coronavirus in Greater China and the Asia-Pacific region could knock up to £200 million off its profit in 2020. The company said that in China, bars and restaurants have been largely closed and that there has been substantial reduction in banqueting. Hardly surprising. Trading has been significantly disrupted since the end of January and so the group expects this to last until uh, March, into March, sorry. And then they expect a gradual improvement in their profits towards the end of 2020. So not the only company to be affected, but one of the first ones to come out with an estimate of just how much they're going to be affected. What other news have you spotted, Heather? Well, I came across a story uh, in The Guardian about the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, who uh, this week admitted to accidentally revealing personal information of about 1,600 people who had made complaints about the FCA. Um, Yeah, they published the names, addresses and phone numbers in a document on its website in response to a request for data under the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, And it related to the number and nature of complaints made against the FCA between January 2018 and July 2019. Um, The FCA have said that they would write to those who had their addresses and phone numbers revealed to inform them of the breach. Uh, and it had referred itself to the Information Commissioner's Office, <laughs> yes. which regulates Too the use right. of data wow. over the breach. Yeah, it, it's particularly embarrassing because um, the FCA were responsible for fining Tesco Bank, Tesco Bank, sixteen point four million pounds in twenty eighteen for failing to protect customer information. So, um, bit of a yeah, prob- yeah, <laughs> bit of embarrassment there, I would think. Um, yeah, and. I suppose it just goes to show that how easy it is to fall foul of this. Yeah. Um, so 
no matter what you've got in place that you know that there's always a potential risk i was talking to somebody the other day who's involved with um security shredding and document storage and um he he was saying that uh, he, he went to a client he was pitching for some business and they said oh you know we got it all sussed here we're absolutely fine he said pass me that waste paper bin and he went through the waste paper bin and he said right okay what's this okay and they literally apart from a sweet wrappers a bag full of breaches load yeah yeah that's a potential breach that's a potential breach so i think that's a that's a great isn't trick it, isn't it what would he have done if there was nothing in the bin he'd have just looked like a I don't bit know. of a fool yeah, <laughs> yeah they would have said go and rummage through your own bins but you know it there's lessons off. to be learned oh, yeah well yeah done. indeed yeah. indeed yeah um I've also got um, the, H- the HSBC is going to close 27 more branches across the UK this year. Of course, we've talked about HSBC, well, various banks in the past and their use of the post office um, counter service. Um, you know, and how are people actually going to be able to access their money if they aren't tech savvy in the way that, you know, a lot yeah. of us are, particularly the elderly. Um, and cash hasn't all gone from no, the system, has it? There's no. a lot of people still reliant on yeah, cash. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so it's going to um, reduce their total number of UK outlets to 594. And there will be closures, including uh, locations such as Regent Street, Kensington High Street. And you would think that if any, you know, if anywhere could support a bank, it would be, you know, city, London um uh, commercial streets you know retail areas but but no so globally it's about thirty five thousand jobs that are being um, affected and across. i know when um, there was a bank in crew that i used to use for one of the businesses i worked at in crew and we, we used it for our business banking but the branch was closed because the measure they were using to um to to um, decide on its uh, effectiveness as a branch was how many mortgages they sold Okay. But it was, a, it was a branch that was largely used by businesses. To, so to deposit yeah, money. Yeah, so they're not going to sell mortgages no. to people no. at that, that particular bank. So some of the measures that they're using, you know, perhaps not, not always so appropriate. But and it, I suppose it depends what their target is each year. Totally, but I think it looks like it applies to all banking because Lloyds Banking Group and the TSB have announced similar, um, similar sort of swinging cuts. So... I don't know. I know it's the changing face of the high street and, you know, the financial, the way that we operate um, financially, but it's not great. It's not great for those people. And th- I think 35,000 jobs across the world. That's yeah. a hell of a shakeup, isn't it? I've uh, spotted uh, an article this week um, in People, Mag- uh, People Management magazine. Um, and I don't know why it uh, appealed to me. I, I work part time. Uh, well, actually, I have one job that's part time. I seem to work yeah. full time. Oh, yeah, yeah. One, yeah. one particular job that I work part time. Now, according to this article, more than one million high paid workers in the UK are now working on a part time basis. And this is based on research from uh, a flexible working consultancy. So they've they've got a bit of a vested interest mm, in yeah. looking at part time work called TimeWise. And um they revealed that 1.07 million, that's the equivalent of almost one in six employees in the UK, earning an annual salary of £40,000 pro rata, did so part-time in 2019, which is apparently a massive increase of 54% since 2012. 
when just 650,000 high earners were doing their job part time. So do you think that's because businesses, you know, to commit £40,000 in salary is, is, is a lot of money and if they employ somebody for three days a week rather than full-time hours, they feel that they're going to get better value for money. Well, I think that's certainly one way to look at it. If you're a, a small, medium company and you want a top-notch um, accountant, yeah. you you might only be able to afford them part-time, but you'd still get you the still, quality of yeah. service. That isn't the way that the article goes, interestingly enough. They talk about that businesses are acknowledging that flexible working is is valuable and not just a necessary evil, and, and that it's uh, something that... Uh, is now being made possible for higher earners. There's another view on it in this article, though, that says actually it's easier for high earners to work part-time than it is for low-paid workers to work part-time. Um, they, they did some research, and uh, the Modern Families Index, a survey of parents in the UK, found that 71% of parents in senior manager roles worked flexibly compared to 48% of parents in junior roles. And there's going to, an element of that is going to be that lower paid roles often require you to physically be there doing something rather than that sort yeah. of more strategic, slightly more ethereal, my knowledge, my experience, whatever. And sadly, maybe some of those part time roles, they're finding they're getting paid for a part time role, but actually fulfilling mm, the full time mm, requirements mm. in their own time. That often happens, particularly in the senior position where you've got those responsibilities and a lot of responsibilities don't sort of come as a part-time nature you're responsible yeah. for it the whole time yeah but you you have the ability to work flexibly and I think that's really valued and I think more and more it, it's valued by everybody across the board whether you're senior or junior position but um, the group chief executive of um, an agency's um, of agencies at media and tech company Miroma. I've not heard of it before. His name's Mark Knorr, I think, N-O-H-R. Um, he was uh, highlighted as the first male director of a large business to go on record as working part-time because often the part-time working is is assumed to be um, the, have less the female yeah, yeah, or, the, or yeah. the mother yeah, of, yeah. of the family. So I think attitudes are changing. It was an interesting article. I'm I'm not sure they've covered all the bases on it, but it certainly gets the conversation going. And I th- and also I think you know if you in any role actually if you're doing if you're doing a good job if you work five days a week if you work a full time role you don't switch your brain off at five o'clock on Friday night and not think about anything to do with work until nine o'clock on Monday morning that just doesn't happen. So the same would apply if you only worked Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You know, Wednesday night. So Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you're still going to be thinking and pondering and weighing things up. And in many ways, up. being able to take that step back and ponder mm-hmm. is incredibly yeah. valuable. Yeah, you, totally. you can think more creatively. Yeah. You, know, you can think a bit broader as well. So there's a lot of value to be Make you a more enriched individual Absolutely. and that you bring that to <laughs> the party. Can you indulge me with um, some stuff that I found in the Hull Daily Please Mail? Do. I don't know do. how I came across the Hull Daily Mail, but they had got some um, top 20 funny shop names in the UK. 
for example, and we've all seen these, haven't we? Like, like we've seen The Codfather and stuff like that. Well, it's a hairdresser's in uh, Hollywell called Curl Up and Die. Curl Up and Die, I'm yeah, D-Y-E. Sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there were a few. So one that I particularly liked was Shawlock Holmes, Locksmith in Portsmouth. <laughs> Planet of the Grapes, wine bar and restaurant in <laughs> London. Spruce Sprinkling. That's hard to say, isn't it? It is. In Cornwall, Carpet Cleaners. Um and the other one that I really like the look of, where has it gone, is um, John claude Van Man. <laughs> removal company. <laughs> You'd have to hire them, wouldn't you? If you were behind that vehicle um, with that on it, I mean, it would, well, it would just crack me up. In our discovery section this week, uh, we're going to talk about an event that Tracy and I went to. We got in a car. We drove up to Mould in uh, North Wales and we went to the theatre there and we attended a HR lunch club that is run by Erin and Partners, which is a law firm based in Shrewsbury, Chester and Wrexham. Yeah. Wirral as well, I think. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, a lovely guy. Well, a nice little, a ni- a nice little lunch when we arrived. And, uh, Sorry, Chester, Shrewsbury and Manchester. Manchester. There That's we it. go. There we go. Um, yeah, see, I'm straight on to the lunch. It's like we arrived and we had lunch. So I had a cheese sandwich yes. and I had some crisps <laughs> and I had a cup of coffee. Yeah, so let's get over the lunch. But okay. yeah, there was a very nice lunch provided. Yes, sorry about that. Yeah, but the whole point of us going, uh, the subject for the um, the HR club was something that's, that's coming into play and is going to affect so many people so many businesses and it is the change in legislation around ir35 now those of you who are contractors who are self-employed or use the services of contractors um uh are going to need to know about this because i don't know about you but after a 45 minute presentation it actually posed more questions than answers to me which I guess is a good thing if you're hosting these things and you are a, 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 law, a law firm <laughs> yes. who wants to sell its services. That yeah. said, they didn't do us down. There's a lot of stuff about the legislation that still isn't completely finalised. Yeah. Um, and, and they were very open about that, but they, they did share what they did know. And it is an extension of the existing rules. These, these definitions of um, self-employment have been in existence for for a long time and also the rules that they're applying now to the private sector have been in place for the public sector for some time so this is now going to apply to the private sector for the 6th of april but not without complication it would seem and if you're an organization that's either providing these services or is hiring these services you must have already thought about this to some extent and and I think where the the big change is in the past, it, the onus has been on the worker or the contractor, the person who's delivering their you know their time and their services, to demonstrate that the the um, the person who's employing their services is not their only client, that they could then possibly be deemed as being employed, but that's shifting now, and the onus is on the company that contracts the individual or uses the worker to check that they are not sole or primary um, um, 
employer, for want of a better word, yeah. of their services, user of their services. There was a big focus on this uh, in, in the 90s when a lot of companies were um, making their IT teams redundant and then employing them back as subcontractors. And, and there was a big shift and the, and the HM Revenue and Customers focused on it. And this is very much an update of, of those sorts of rules. Interestingly enough, this change um, applies to medium and large companies. And we got the definition uh, yesterday. So it has to be a company. So that when we say this applies to the company, it might still apply to a contractor, even if it's not this size, because the contractor is, is just the one person. Mm. But the company that is the one that engages the contractor has to satisfy at least two of the following criteria. So the turnover has to be more than 10.2 million. Aggregate assets on the balance sheet have to be more than 5.2 million. I don't know where the 0.2 comes from. And um, they have to have more than 50 employees. So it applies to you if any two of those turnover assets or number of employees um, is, is met. So just two out of those three. Any smaller companies, then the contractor become still remains responsible for the employment status. So that, that's an important thing to note. And um, some of the principles of self-employment that still apply, it's just that the, um, there's slightly more um, to think about around it. Um, the three principles of self-employment are still um, mutuality of obligation, sufficient control by the employer, and that the employee provides a personal service. Not a product, a service. A service, yeah. yeah. And, and I think, you know, we've heard quite a lot, you know, about Uber. Um, you know, there was, there was a lot of um, discussion and a lot, a lot of coverage in the press about, you know, is an Uber driver self-employed? Is an Uber driver employed? Um, and, and we've also had the whole zero hours contracts. And essentially all this is about is where does the point, where, what, what is the point of taxation? <laughs> That's what the that's what the revenue is trying to, and to identify. And it sounds to me like it's complicated, to the extent that HMRC aren't even getting it right. So they're providing a really useful tool. I went online and and used it. It's called CEST. C E S T. However, um, they've been arguing against the. Um, the outcomes of using of some companies who've used this mm. tool, mm. which suggests to me that it really is a bit too complicated. And um, the the person giving the presentation was, was sort of saying, yeah, the, it, it's a, almost a case by case basis mm. and how you assess these things. Yeah. And um, he said and then I was talking to a HR um consultant uh, today and he said if you use CEST which is basically you you answer questions and it tells you whether you know whether it's inside or it's outside quite a lot of questions right okay um to keep a copy of whatever it tells you keep a copy of that because that will evidence the basis upon which you have made the decision uh, and it will give you something to kind of hang your hat on uh, and at least you made that decision in good faith yeah yeah but then if, if at later date the HMRC argue against that decision, well, there's a little bit of mitigation, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but certainly keep a copy of that um, and and seek professional advice because yeah, it 
it, it's, it's complicated. It's, it is yeah. complicated, I think. So on the day that we were actually at the lunch club, uh, news was just out about Eamon Holmes having lost his case with the HMRC. And at the point of... Um, Recording this show, he was due to be paying a £250,000 tax bill for um, tax that the HMRC claimed he should have paid because he was offering his services um, to the BBC, is it? Yes. Uh, no, ITV. ITV. Yeah. It's, it's this mor- is it this morning that he's on? I think it is. Yeah. ATV Company. Sorry. A TV company, a commercial I'm, TV station. I'm always station. listening to Cal on FM. Well, I, this I is don't... it. You don't really know. <laughs> yeah. um, but he was offering his services through a personal service company. And the part of the argument, it was clearly way more complicated than this, is that the TV company were buying the services of Eamon Holmes and there's no way he could have substituted um, Phil Schofield no, instead. No, because then they would be using Philip Schofield. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, they were buying the brand and the person, Eamon Holmes, and so they were claiming back a £250,000 tax bill. Um, I, I think Eamon Holmes was quoted as saying that they're moving the goalposts in order to catch me, which it, it might feel like mm. at times. Mm. But um, we were told that the um, the legislation, when it goes through on the 6th of April that is still the plan, is not thought to be retrospective. So it's only thought to Mm -hmm. apply from the 6th of April. But because the the legislation hasn't actually been enacted yet, then that's not definitely confirmed. There have been reassurances that they won't be heavy-handed. So with our our tea drinker... um, He's he said that they're not going to be heavy handed with the implementation. But again, that isn't license for you to get it wrong. That's just an indication that they might be lenient. And I think one other thing that I I thought was really interesting, there was some discussion in the room around if because it's not this isn't only about taxation it's about employee benefits and employee entitlement yeah and it may be that it might suit an individual to claim that they are employed in order to get you know, some and that's em- where the uber employee- drivers were coming from yes, isn't it? yeah so you know whether that's holiday entitlement whether it's uh, pension provision whether it's sickness payment all of those types of things so um so you can kind of look at it both ways. Some people want to vehemently say, "No, I am not employed by you. Therefore, I don't owe you. I don't owe two hundred and fifty thousand pounds worth of of tax, unpaid yeah. tax." Or I want to be classed as employed by you because I want the employee benefits. And I imagine that some of that's going to be a bit like we were talking earlier. If you're at the higher end of the pay scale, one might be preferable, and if you're at the lower end of the pay scale the other might be preferable so as this is the discovery section i I thought we should share the fact that aaron and partners do offer other um, freebie services as well as well as paid services um so on their upcoming events they've got their employment law roadshow i've been for the last couple of years and they're very good it's a full morning plus a lunch i do sound like i'm a bit of a freeloader with my free lunches can't be a nice lunch if it's on offer who am I to say? No, thank you. Um, they've got the Wirral Employment Law Roadshow, which is taking place on the 3rd of March, and the Chester Employment Law Roadshow on the 12th of March. I shall see you there if you go to that one. And they are doing a masterclass just on IR35. Now, this is a paid workshop in Chester, but no doubt if you've got some complicated questions that you 
need to work through, then that might be the place to go rather than one of the road shows because you, you can get more, more time and more detailed questions answered. And I would highly recommend their lunch clubs. That's the first time I've been to one of their lunch clubs and it was in a lovely setting in, um, in Theatre Cluid. I had a very nice time. Thank you very much. This week on The Business Community, we're profiling Stephen Peter Morgan, CBE. He's an English businessman, investor and philanthropist. He's probably best known as the founder of the construction company Red Row and perhaps if you're a football fan, as the former chairman of Wolverhampton Wanderers Football Club. He was born in Liverpool, in Garston to be precise, in 1952 and is the son of a plant hire operator. Apparently, he changed school nine times, um, presumably his parents moving. Um, he went to Colwyn Bay when he was 13 and was educated at Colwyn High School and then went to Liverpool Poly, which is now Liverpool John Moores, where he completed a two-year diploma. So his background in civil engineering, a subject we know quite a bit about, oh, Heather, yes, now. Yes, yes, because we... Yeah, we are privileged to, in, to interview, for the last two years, wasn't it? The yes. The president. president of the National Institute of Civil Engineers. Close, yeah, something that like right? that, yeah. The institution of institution. civil engineers. Oh, yeah, I knew there was something very specific that we... Um, that Yeah, we... we but um, what I think is quite interesting, based where we are here at, at, at Glyndor, is in the 1990s, he invested in hotels and he developed the St David's Park Hotel, which is up at Yulo. And also Carton Park Hotel. So um, he then merged his interests in those hotels into the De Vere Group. So he's got, I think he's probably quite a shrewd businessman. It would appear that with way. With his personal wealth as well as, um, you know, his, well, the running of, of Red Row, which is, I mean, I should think pretty much every town in the country has got Red Row homes somewhere. Yeah, and they announced... Um um, October 2018, they announced their 100,000th customer since they founded the business. And, and I think this goes back to um, 1974 and the recession. He um, offered to take over a business that was failing. Mm -hmm. And this this business, a civil engineering business, was going to be putting the sewers in in Penley. Um, and so he offered to take it over. And then this is the business that went on to become Red Row PLC, as it is. And uh, he's been in and out of the company a few times. He tried to leave, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. And it's often the case where the founder leaves and then the business falls on hard times. The founder comes back and revives the fortunes and it disappears. He well and truly revived the fortunes of Red Row. He left the company in 2019, and at that point, at that point, the company was valued at 2.2 billion pounds. So that's quite a long way. Apparently, he borrowed 5,000 pounds off his dad to uh, to buy out the company that was doing the civil engineering in Penley. Gosh, so that that's, that's quite a, good a good return conversion. on your yeah, investment, isn't not it? Not bad at all. Uh, yeah, and we often find that with you know a lot of people that we talk about, you, you know, they start off on a market store or something, and then. Yeah, they go on a journey that, that that turns things around massively. I think one of the reasons he came back um, was not only he had a big he had a big stake in that business. Yeah. <laughs> so there it was some personal interest. Yes, yeah. indeed, indeed. Um, and he um, 
he it, it looks like that even through they weathered the storm through the the um the financial crisis and the you know the building crisis you know 2009 onwards so um but one thing that i mean i'm not a football fan so i don't really know the history of wolverhampton wanderers but i'm quite interested in his um philanthropical philanthropical just leave it at philanthropic philanthropic that's it um activities he set up uh, in 2001 something called the steve morgan foundation to which he has personally committed over 300 million pounds and has support provided support to more than 650 charities and what was quite heartening is you you know you often hear that that people do this sort of thing i'm involved i'm a, a trustee of a charity based down in oswestry and i saw that they have a fund that that um the steve morgan foundation has a fund that you can apply to so i sent an email to our chief officer and said do we know about this fund and they said yeah they funded one of our projects for three years and they funded um um a bus for us so it's nice to see that actually sometimes the money does cascade yeah. down because very often it feels like it's just you know for big projects these would have been fairly small projects but really making a difference to people in and in it's a, very specific as to the um the regions that they fund so on the steve morgan foundation website uh, they they say that they fund north wales merseyside cheshire and North Shropshire. And what they're interested in is funding projects that will result in a positive effect on people's welfare or quality of life or improves opportunities and life choices. And they're particularly interested in receiving applications from organisations which help children, children and families, the elderly, those with disabilities and the socially isolated. And we tick those boxes. Yeah. (laughs) You do with your project then. And, and I, I was really heartened to hear that you'd had some some direct funding yeah. from them. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's good to know that real projects are actually happening and it's not just lip service being paid to philanthropy. So, yeah, well, uh, one, I think you're absolutely right. It is nice to see that it that it, it cascades down. Um, very often you come across little bits of controversy or um, litigation that's happened in February 2019 um, Morgan received an apology and damages from the Daily Mail after being falsely accused of buying red row at an undervalue um, he, he said uh, it's a shame that it's taken 18 months for justice to be served and for the Daily Mail to recognize its wrongdoing however I'm pleased to record that this has now been set straight and we can draw a line un- under the issue and the damages that he was awarded um paid towards adapted minibuses for two special needs schools. Now, okay, he's, he's worth 90, 950 million. So That's according to the 2019 Sunday Times Rich List. R- yes, yeah. Um, but again, very often, you know, it's nice to see that, yes, we want some money. He just wanted... He just wanted justice, justice to be done. Yeah, yeah. So I looked a little bit into his personal life. So yes, he's, he's worth an estimated... £950 million. He's got a home on the Caribbean island of Antigua. Now, the thing that intrigued me, and I didn't have time to dig deeper in, he's apparently a lifelong supporter of Liverpool Football Club. So why was he a chairman of Wolverhampton Wanderers? I I need to look further into that one. But the the guy is from Liverpool. 
and it, it's understandable if he was a Liverpool fan. So um, what I don't understand, and I'm happy if somebody could share some insight into that, why on earth he was the chairman of Wolverhampton Wanderers FC. The other thing that I noticed about his personal life, he's been married a few times, but his current wife is also a trustee on the Morgan Found, Steve Morgan Foundation. Um, She's not just been parachuted in because she's his wife. She's a very experienced businesswoman herself, Sally Morgan. She's a chairman at recruitment business Stark Brooks, and she became a trustee in October 2015. Uh, She's got years of experience in recruitment, and she is regarded as one of the top 50 most influential women in the Northwest and one of the country's leading headhunters. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So that is Steve Morgan, uh, founder and philanthropist, f- founder of Red Row Homes and philanthropist. Uh, if you want to find out more about him, we'll pop a couple of links to his charitable foundation and um, and a couple of other interesting things on our website, which is thebusiness.community. I think that's about all we've got time for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Callan FM. 